Father, we thank you, Lord, for another Sunday morning. We can get together and worship you, glorify you, remember what Christ did for us on the cross and rose on the third day, defeating death, defeating Satan, defeating sin, Lord. We thank you that we have hope, that we have joy, that we have a future in you, that we have forgiveness of sins, Lord. Your word talks about blessed is the man whose sin is not accounted to him. So, Lord, we are so thankful that we are forgiven in Christ We pray, Lord, that you would unify this fellowship, strengthen our faith, grow us in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Help us to be more like you, Lord. We pray for leaders in our country, those, Lord, who are supposed to be like shepherds to the nation, Lord, ruling righteously. Lord, we pray that those that don't know you in high positions, that they would turn to you, that they would repent of wickedness, Lord, before it's too late and turn to you, glorify you, and bless the nation. So, Lord, be with us today as we get into your word. Sanctify us, purify us, remove any distractions, any hindrances that would get in the way of us loving you with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourself. So bless this message. May you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Title of today's teaching is Growing in the Grace and Knowledge of Jesus Christ. Growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. I want to piggyback off of last week's message, drifting from the simplicity of Jesus Christ to this week growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And the Christian message in one sense is simple. It's easy to understand. It's not too complex for a child to grasp. Um, And that's this, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. We talked about this last week, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4. The main message, Paul says, that he wanted to proclaim to the Corinthian church, the gospel message of first importance, as he calls it. It's the gospel by which we stand, the gospel by which we are saved if we hold fast to it. Scripture says that all we like sheep have gone astray and the Lord has laid on him, that's Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He took the punishment, he took the wrath of God that we deserve upon himself on the cross. So when we put our faith and trust in him, we now become righteous, we now become cleansed, we now become purified, washed anew. That is the gospel message, the death burial, and resurrection of the sinless Savior, Jesus Christ, who took our place, his substitutionary atonement on the cross, paid in full. To Telestai, he cried out as he was dying on the cross. Our sins were paid for. And that basic message, even a child, if you explain it to them, can understand that. You don't need to go to seminary for eight years or get a PhD degree or know the Greek and the Hebrew or have a great IQ to understand these things. You just need to humble yourself. You need to have childlike faith and believe in what Jesus did for you. Aren't you thankful that the Lord made the message easy to understand and simple? Aren't you thankful that you don't need to go to school all these years to just grasp the gospel message? I know I am. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew Chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, he said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants, the simple-minded, the unlearned. Yes, Father, this way was pleasing in your sight. God reveals his truth to those who are humble, childlike, simple-minded. And that's us. Sorry to break the news to you. That's us simple-minded, like children. That was the disciples, fishermen, tax collectors, zealots, peasants. They weren't the the smartest bunch that Jesus chose to be in his inner circle. He didn't go to the Pharisees. He didn't go to the religious leaders. He didn't go to the wise. He went to fishermen, peasants, zealots who wanted to fight the Roman Empire. Peasants, if you will. That was the early church. Listen to what Paul tells the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Paul says this to the Corinthian church, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, 
But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. Yet it was, this, it was these simple-minded, unintellectual fishermen, and one of them, who was a follower of Jesus, who charges us with this command, grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Who wrote these words? Who wrote these words? Grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Perhaps you've heard of him. His name was Peter. Turn with me to 2 Peter 3.18. That's the verse we're looking at today. 2 Peter 3.18, the first part of this verse. Peter is encouraging us. He's commanding us to spend our lives studying Jesus, learning from Jesus, growing in Jesus, longing to be more like him. 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. This uneducated, self-confident follower of Jesus matured. He grew in the Lord. He became a pillar of the early church. He's the one that on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and in, into Acts chapter 3, he's the one preaching the gospel. 3,000 people getting saved. The church is multiplying. Jesus chose him and raised him up to be an integral part of the early church and the church spreading around the world. Peter has left us a legacy to all follow. Listen to what Alexander McLaren, he was a Baptist pastor in the late 1800s. Some call him one of the greatest expositional preachers that ever lived. He said, quote of this verse, there or these are the last words of an old man written down as his legacy. I mean, verse 18, this is the last thing that Peter wrote down for us. He was himself a striking example of his own precept. It would be an interesting study to examine these two letters of the Apostle Peter in order to construct from them a picture of what he became and to construct it with his earlier self when full of self-confidence and rashness and instability. It took a lifetime for Simon, the son of Jonah, to grow into Peter, but it was done. And the very faults of character became strengths. What he had proved possible in his own case, he commands and commends to us. And from the height to which he reached, he, look, he looks upwards to the infinite ascent, which he knows he will attain when he puts off this tabernacle, and then downwards to his brethren, bidding them to climb and aspire. Coming to Christ for our salvation is the beginning of a lifelong journey, an aspiring, a climbing, a learning, a growing, a maturing in Christ to be more like him, to be united to him. Peter's command here in verse 18 is contrasted with the verse right before it, verse 17. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness. Be on guard. Be on the alert. Beware. Have your head on a swivel. Look around at all times so that you don't fall from your own steadfastness. Who knew better than Peter what it was like to fall from their own steadfastness? Peter denied the Lord three times. Remember, Jesus looked at him right after he denied him the third time, and it says, Peter went away and wept bitterly. So if anyone knew what it was like to fall, it was Peter. So he's telling Christians, guard yourselves so the same thing doesn't happen to you. How do you guard yourself? How do you make sure that you don't fall like Peter or eternally fall away from the Lord? Well, the answer is in verse 18, the word but. Therefore, instead, so that you don't fall, this is what you are to do. Grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's the answer. Grow. Oxano is the Greek word. It means to increase. To increase in maturity. To grow into maturity into Christ. 
It's the same Greek word used in Matthew 6, 28 when Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, observe the lilies of the field. Observe how the lilies of the field grow. Look at them and watch them grow. He's telling his disciples in the context of not being anxious and how God takes care of even the lilies of the field and they grow. Leah, my wife, many of you know, she's a plant lady. This morning she actually had on a plant shirt, had all these different plants and what they are and I think a friend gave it to her, maybe someone even at this fellowship. At one time we had about 100 plants in our house. I actually asked her this morning, how many plants do we have? She goes, well, we sold a couple of them, so or maybe down to 75, but some of the rooms are almost designated with plants. We've almost got kicked out of the rooms because the plants are there taking center stage. I wouldn't say that, but these are like her children, okay? We have three children, but we have 75 other children that need to be watered and cared for and nurtured around our house. And from time to time, Leah will point out a plant and say, look at this plant. Remember not too long ago, this plant was this little itty-bitty thing and I was watering it and caring for it and now look at it and it's just like overflowing. I'm like, wow. And then a year later, she'll show me that same plant and I'm like, we got to get rid of that thing. <laughs> it's growing too much. But some of the plants, they're stubborn. And if you go up to Leah after service, she'll tell you about these several plants where she's caring for them and she's giving them the certain kind of food that they need and water and she's keeping them in the sunlight. I'm trying to close all the drapes and close everything so that the sun's not coming in. The house isn't getting too hot. I'm cheap. I don't want to run the air conditioning unit. And so, but she needs to keep it open. The plants need sun. They need a certain amount of light. But she's nurturing these plants. She's walking alongside these plants and day after day after day, no growth. Month after month, no growth. At some point, is this plant going to grow? They're stubborn till finally we have to get rid of it. You throw it away. You say, wow, a waste of money. I need to do more research. I need to figure out maybe it's us. Maybe it's not the right climate. I don't know what it is. Fortunately, most, many of the plants aren't like that. She has a green thumb and knows how to figure things out. But God is the master gardener. He wants his plants to grow. He prunes them. He cares for them. And guess who his plants are? His people. We are his plants, so to speak. He wants us to grow. He prunes us. He nurtures us. He waters us. He's there encouraging us. He gives us his Holy Spirit, and he's pleading with us to grow. Listen to Isaiah chapter 5 as God tells his people Israel, who he calls a choice vine on a fertile hill, he tells them, I planted you a vineyard on, the, on this fertile hill. I dug all around it. I expected it to grow. This is what God says in Isaiah chapter 5. I expected you to grow. And I expected you to produce good fruit, good grapes. Listen to what God says in Isaiah 5 verse 4. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done to it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? He goes on to say in verse 6, I will lay it waste. He says, I'm not going to prune it anymore. I'm not going to be involved in it and nurture it and care for it. I'm laying it waste. Verse 7, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. God was patient with them, nurturing them, pruning them, walking alongside them. Come on, kind of like Leah with some of these stubborn plants, till finally he goes, that's it. I'm going to destroy you. The Babylonians are going to come in, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and so forth, and wipe you out. Jeremiah, stop praying for them. Stop reaching out to me for them. It's done. It's a done deal. They've been, they are going to be destroyed. They're not growing. Sobering, sobering thing. So God wants his children 
to grow. He expects us to grow. He's given us the grace necessary, and we have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God who's active in our growth. He hasn't left us to ourselves. He's not like, just go over there and grow. Okay, I expect you to grow all by yourselves. No, he's walking alongside of us. He's within us. He's inside of us. Philippians 2, verse 13. God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. John 16, 13. Jesus said, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. So God's at work in you, both to will and to work for good pleasure, for his good pleasure. The Holy Spirit's inside of you causing you to grow in truth. And there was Jesus who was interceding, who is interceding for us, but who was there with Peter praying for him. And, Pe- and Jesus told Peter, I'm praying for you that your faith will not fail. It was Jesus who was there to restore Peter after he did fall. It was Jesus who then commissioned Peter. There in John chapter 21, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, Shepherd my sheep, Peter, follow me. If you remember, as Jesus is restoring him, Peter's looking over at John. He's getting his eyes off of Jesus. But what about this man, Jesus? What, what about him? No, no, you, Peter, you follow me. You keep your eyes on me, Peter. In a sense, you, Peter, grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's how you fell before. You got your eyes off of me. You got your eyes onto yourself. You were self-confident, you were prideful, and you fell. You weren't growing in me. Your eyes weren't on me as they should have been. So here's Peter from from his experience encouraging the churches. So how does Peter tend the lambs? How does he shepherd the sheep? He gives us first and second Peter. That's one way he fulfilled Jesus' restoration. He's encouraging a suffering church. He's encouraging suffering Christians. If you read these letters, if you read 1 Peter, they're suffering all throughout it. He's writing to a hurting church, a persecuted church, Christians who are plagued with false prophets and false teachers who are coming in teaching heresies, destructive heresies, Christians who are tempted like Israel to grow stagnant, to take their faith for granted, to get comfortable, to become lazy, to become self-confident. I believe that's the American church. Israel is a picture of the American church. And if the American church doesn't repent, if they don't turn from their wickedness overall, destruction is coming. What we learn from Peter's lesson or letters is this. His letters teach us there's no coasting in Christianity. Listen to some of Peter's statements. 1 Peter 1.13, gird your minds for action. I love 1 Peter 2.2, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word that that by it you may grow in regards to your salvation. Gird your minds for action. Long for the milk of the word. 1 Peter 3.15, always be ready to give an answer or defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is within you. Do it with gentleness and respect. You're always to be ready at all times. If anyone asks you, you're to make a defense. First Peter 4, 8, keep fervent in your love for one another. So there's no coasting. Our flesh wants to coast so bad. Doesn't it sound good to just move to Hawaii and go sit on the beach and drink some iced teas with some umbrellas in there? Maybe for some of you, you're like, no, I'm in Idaho. Why would I want to do that? Hunting and fishing and outdoor stuff and come on. But some people might want to do that kind of thing. Just go on a cruise the rest of your life. I don't know if you had the money, just travel around the world and sit back on the cruise ship. And, you know, Leah and I went to Alaska on a cruise and it was a great time. And it was supposed to rain the whole time. And instead we got sun and we got to see these amazing icebergs I think I don't even know a bunch of snow really is what it was you could see it just walking outside here in the winter they hyped it up to (laughs) overcharged us but I'm still a little bit bitter but here we thought this is going to be the time of our life we're going on this cruise our five-year anniversary it's just going to fulfill us or at least what I thought it's going to fulfill me it's going to bring so much joy and I came home so empty 
My pocketbook was empty. Money was gone, and I was empty. But when I serve the Lord, when I do what he's calling me to do, when I preach the word, I'm telling you, I'm more fulfilled on Sunday morning than I was on a cruise to Alaska. I'm telling you the truth. And that's what happens when we submit our lives to the Lord. When we follow him, when we allow the Holy Spirit to lead us, when we're filled with him and not with the junk of this world. My father-in-law was telling me about a Mustang that was souped up with 1,400 horsepower. And he was showing Leland, my son, some videos and telling us how they were racing Lamborghinis against this thing and Teslas. And he's like, bring, he would basically challenge anyone. Go ahead, bring your fastest car. 1,400 horsepower. And he would just smoke them like zero to 60 in 1.8 seconds or something like that. Amazing. He's like, look at all these videos online. And then he taught his daughter, who's like 14 years old, how to do the same thing. And she's racing these people. And I think of 1,400 horsepower. I had a Honda Civic. It had 200 horsepower. And I thought, wow, look at this thing go. 1,400. That's a lot. And I think as Christians, we don't realize we have Holy Spirit power. We have access to so much power if we but utilize it, if we but tap into it, so to speak, if we humble ourselves and cry out to God, like Jesus said, will your father not give you the Holy Spirit? Does he not give the Holy Spirit freely? If you ask him for a fish, is he going to throw you a snake? If you ask him for an egg, is he going to throw you a scorpion? How much more will your heavenly father give you good gifts? If you have an earthly father, that's going to give you an egg or going to take care of you and give you what you ask for. God wants to bless his children. He wants us to live the abundant life. He wants to show himself off to the world and exalt his name through the power of the Holy Spirit in us. He wants us at times in our Christian walk to go full spiritual pedal to the metal and just say, Lord, I'm going all out for you. I'm pressing on. I'm pressing in. What do you have for me? These are my gifts. This is what you've blessed me with. This is the deck, so to speak, that I have. What do you want me to do with it, Lord? And it might look different across the room. And it might look different right now and even much more different in a month and six months and a year and five years if you take these verses seriously and you say, I want to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Paul said to pursue the greater gifts, to long for the greater gifts. He says, pursue love and earnestly desire the greater gifts. And as you plead for the Lord, Lord, I want to be used by you. I want to show you off to the world and I want to bless your church. Watch what God will do in your life. He'll take fishermen and make them preachers and pastors and evangelists and those who write letters that billions and billions of people have read. So whenever you think, well, I don't really have that much to give, think about Peter, just a fisherman, uneducated, unlearned, probably not the highest IQ who God used amazingly. So yes, there's a time in the Christian walk for refreshing. There's a time of relaxing. There's a time of resting in Christ. We have to remember we're in a marathon. It's a long race. The life that we live is a race. It's a long race. And there are struggles and there are hard times and there are seasons that we go through. But we're all there linking arm and arm together to get to the finish line. To grow in Christ. Listen to what McLaren says as well. He says, quote, you would never think of telling a child to grow any more than you would think of telling a plant to grow. But Peter tells Christians, men and women, to grow. Why? because they're not plants, but men with wills which can resist and can either for and hinder the progress. I write really small sometimes, so it's hard to read my notes, but we can kind of buck at what God's saying. We, we have wills. Plants don't have wills. Children, they have wills as well, and they are disobedient in many ways. Just come over to my house and see but that's not going to stunt their growth necessarily, their physical growth. Kids are just naturally going to grow. That's just going to happen. That's the way life is. But Christians, 
we can either choose to follow God's word, to humble ourselves, to draw near to God and he'll draw near to us, to submit our lives to him and watch what he does, or we can do, our th- we can do things our own way. We can keep learning the same lessons over and over again. We can fall like Peter, and when the Lord wants to restore us, we could say, no, I'm not ready yet. And instead of return back to the Lord and instead of submit to his grace, and he could teach us a lesson in one week, perhaps it takes him 30 years because of how stubborn we are. So it's so crucial that we understand these things. If you'll turn with me to Second Peter one, chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, I want to read the first 12 verses because Peter starts this second letter in the same way he ends. I think 2 Peter 3.18, the last verse Peter writes for us, is expounded upon. It's, it's laid to bear, so to speak. It's brought out into the open in the first 12 verses here. The grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Where he ends is how he begins. 2 Peter Chapter 1, verse 1, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him, who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, Brethren, be all the more diligent. Make certain about his calling and choosing you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Therefore, I shall always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. What we see from this text, there's many things. We see the urgency where he's saying, be all the more diligent. Be diligent in these things. Make haste. But we see in verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Without grace, knowledge just puffs up. Grace comes before knowledge. Grace keeps us balanced. At the heart of growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ is realizing we need his grace realizing we're an undeserving people, that God's love, his kindness, his mercy cannot be earned but are freely given in Christ. We must realize this before we jump ahead and say it's time to grow in the knowledge. Some people just want to grow in knowledge. I want to know more about God and his word, and that's awesome, but they forget the grace part, and they become imbalanced. Without his grace, we're doomed. Without his grace, we have no hope, Without his grace, we have no forgiveness, no love, no joy, no peace, no comfort, not now, not in the future, not in the life to come. As one theologian has written, quote, grace is what we crave when we are guilt-laden. Grace is what we must have when we come to die. Grace is our only ray of hope when the future darkens over with storm clouds of fear. And how shall we receive this grace? Where shall we send our roots down? To what sunshine shall we turn up our leaves? To the promises given to us when the master bought us by his death. The best fertilizer for our hope and godliness is the knowledge of our future in God's grace. 
clinging to his precious and magnificent promises. Everything that God has given us in Christ. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. Do we cling to these promises that we will rule and reign with Christ? As 1 Corinthians 6 says, we will judge the world. We will judge angels. He has a lot in store for us. Not only now, but he's freely given us the kingdom with Christ. I told Leah, if we have another girl, I want to name her Grace, which she wasn't exactly on board with. I mean, she loves grace, the concept, the doctrine, the biblical teaching, but not the name. And I tried that with naming our son. I said, Uriah. I really like the name Uriah. And she said, no. So we settled with Leland, which we both like. But I really love this name, Grace. I love the concept. I love how God has given us all grace and how much I need his grace. And the more I learn about it, I'm just in awe of God's grace. And if we, na- if we did have another girl, which would be by the grace of God, because Leah says we're done having children, three's enough, but then our house would be full of grace and mercy and truth. That's what Verity's name means, actually, truth. So we'd have grace, mercy, and truth. So maybe I'm convincing her right now. It'd be pretty cool. But what does it mean to grow in grace? You know, this is something I'm thinking about as I'm putting this together. Grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I think we can kind of put our handle more on grow in knowledge of who Jesus is. And the Greek word is gnosis. It's this experiential knowledge. It's not just knowing things about Jesus and learning things and writing them down and having head knowledge. It's an experiential firsthand knowledge, a union with Jesus Christ. Same word where it talks about Mary did not know Joseph yet. That intimate relationship, that spiritual intimacy that we are to have with Jesus Christ, to know him. But what does it mean to grow in grace? And I believe it means to grow in an understanding of how much God loves you. Grow in that, that you're not doubting how much God loves you. It's a secure foundation of what you believe about him, that he is love and that he loves you, that he's ready and willing to forgive you, that when you stumble, when you mess up, when you're, when you're pursuing the Lord, when you're trying to grow in him, when you're trying to be faithful to Second Peter chapter 1 and grow in these qualities and you mess up from time to time, you mess up as a spouse, as a husband or as a wife or as a father or you mess up in your relationship with the Lord and you let him down, you, you repent As one person told me, you keep short accounts with the Lord and whatever it is that's on your conscience, you give it right to him and you say, now I'm forgiven. I'm cleansed because I've grown in my love for him. I've grown in grace. I know that his grace is being poured out for me and that he's forgiven me. And it's not a prideful, arrogant thing. It's just boasting of his love and his forgiveness in Christ and we're able to move on. We're early on in our Christian walk or when we're not growing in grace, we, we, fu- we fall or we stumble and Satan just keeps using that to hold us back from pursuing the Lord, from getting out and using our gifts and from loving him the way we should. So growing in grace means to realize that God has blessed you so much, that he's going to continue to bless you, to realize how much he has in store for you, to realize how much God loves you in Jesus Christ. John 1.17, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Romans 5.20, Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. When you read about Paul and he says, I'm the chief of sinners. You know, who knew more of God's grace than perhaps the Apostle Paul? He says in 1 Timothy 1.14, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. See, if Paul didn't grow in grace, he would have been held back from the ministry. He would have thought about all the people that he had put to death, that he had, like Stephen in Acts chapter 7, who they threw stones at and killed him, stoned to death right in front of Paul. He gave his hearty approval. He was rounding up Christians, wrecking families, wrecking people's lives, and then Jesus appeared to him, and everything changed. And he says, God's grace was overflowing in my life so that he was able to serve Jesus the rest of his life. 
So you begin to thank God more when you grow in grace. You begin to sacrifice more and to appreciate his sacrifice even more and you long to be more like him. According to Titus chapter 2, verse 12, growing in grace means that you will grow in godliness. It means that you'll grow in righteousness. It means that you'll live sensibly in the present age. There's some that talk about hyper-grace. They believe they're growing in grace, and what they believe that means is that you can live however you want. See, we're all about God's grace. God's a forgiving God. God's a loving God, so I can do whatever I want. Or actually, the New Testament teaches the opposite. The grace of God has appeared to all men, bringing salvation. And then he goes on to say in verse 12, it teaches us not to pursue ungodliness and worldly desires, but to live godly lives, righteous lives, and live sensibly in this age. The more you grow in grace, the more you become like Christ and pursue Christ-like experiential knowledge. Peter uses the word Greek word spude in verse 5, 2 Peter 1, verse 5, and it's spudazo in verse 10, where he says, for this reason, apply all diligence. Perhaps your translation says something different in verses 5 and verse 10. Be all the more diligent. Spudazo, spude. It means move quickly. Make haste. Be earnest. Be diligent. Be diligent in your faith, he's saying. Don't sit back. It's time to be active. Hurry up. With an urgency, supply these things with seven traits, and then he lists them. Moral excellence and knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. I know my brother Tommy, these are like key verses in his life. I think he has either all of this or most of these verses memorized. He goes... And Pastor Joe's taught him this many times, Simi Valley, our church back home, to where it's like, look, if you're growing in these qualities, if you're increasing in these, like, this is our ticket. I mean, verse 8, if these are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's like an easy test. Am I growing in these qualities? That's what Peter's saying. Do you want to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ? Do you want to fulfill second? Peter 3.18, here's where it's at. How are you doing in your self-control? How are you doing in your brotherly kindness? How are you doing in your love? How are you doing in your endurance, waiting on the Lord, trusting him in the midst of trials and hardships? Look at these things. Are you increasing in them? Are you maturing in them? Are you growing in them? Are you like a plant that's just flourishing? Or what's holding you back? What's stunting the growth? What in your life is causing you to not grow in these things? What is it? Is it temptation? Is it doubt? Is it hardship? Is it trials? Whatever it may be, God wants us to look to him, to gaze to the cross, to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, to be filled with his spirit so that we can increase in these things qualities. 2 Timothy 3.7 says there's some that won't increase. They won't come to the knowledge of the truth. He says there's these women that are always learning. Actually in the King James it says silly women. and NIV it says gullible women. And he gets on the men too of course but every, time, every once in a while you got to pick on the women. In the New Testament but he says in 2 Timothy 3, 7, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They're never able to have this experiential knowledge of Jesus Christ to truly know him. They might know a lot of things about him. They might go to church. They might serve in church. But they've been weighed down by sins, it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3. They're led on by various impulses. Essentially, they're living for themselves. Selfish desires, worldly desires, They have a lot of head knowledge, but they don't know Jesus. They don't know the truth. And there's many people in churches today, and that's the same case. I believe it says in Titus 1.16, professing to know God, but they deny him by, by how they live, by the sin in their life, by their deeds. And that's how Peter tells us to even look at false prophets. You'll know them by their deeds. 
If you follow them long enough, if you watch their lives, you'll see that they're living in sin, that they're doing it for selfish desires. I read of a man, Michael Nicholson. He went to school for 55 years straight, 30 degrees, 23 master's degrees, two associate degrees, a bachelor's degree, a doctorate degree. And he said, at 75 years old, I want to keep going to school. I want to get more degrees. But I think they were saying, it's, it's time for you to move on. I was reading the article, and it didn't exactly say why, but he's like, I'm getting old now. I need to, I need to do something else. And I just, people are learning so many things. I mean, what are you, I don't know, what are you going to do? With, I, what are you doing with all these degrees? What was his purpose? He actually claimed to be a Christian. He said one of the degrees was a seminary degree. And then he just was so intrigued with learning that every year he just kept learning and learning more. Well, okay, that's between him and the Lord. If he's doing it for the Lord's glory and somehow serving Jesus through it, that's between him and the Lord. But so many people are, it's all about your education. Do you have, a, do you have an associate's degree? Do you have a bachelor's degree? You got a master's degree? You got a doctorate? Where are you going to school? What are you going to do with your life? And they've completely missed the whole purpose. They've learned so many things yet they don't know Jesus Christ. I mean, who goes to school for many? Imagine someone that said, I'm going to go to school for 55 years and learn about Jesus. I'm going to go to 55-year seminary and just learn about him and study his word. They'd be laughed at, even in Christian circles, probably like, what a waste of time. But when we hear about people with PhDs and doctorate degrees, I think there's something in us that's like, wow, that's to be respected. That's to be honored. Wow, look at, they're a learned person. And in one sense, there is an honor to that. They had to work hard for those things, not bashing doctorate degrees or anything like that. I have a bachelor's degree, which taught me so many things about the Bible that I shouldn't even have learned. And it was a really bad education. I wasted a lot of money, and I'm still paying for it to this day. Unless Biden's law goes through, that cancels out student debt. But I have quite a bit of it myself. I was taught the Bible's not the word of God. Jesus isn't the son of God. He didn't truly rise from the grave. Evolution and Christianity are compatible, and essentially you can be an atheist, and that's a Christian. That's what I paid a lot of money to go learn from a Lutheran pastor with a PhD from USC and Yale. So, yeah, kind of bothered by that. But we, as Christians want to make sure that at the front and center of the learning that we do is growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. You might know a lot of things in this world. You might have a trade that you have learned. You might know a lot about this hobby or this thing, and praise God if it's for his glory. Awesome. But make it your ambition. Be diligent. Make haste. Be earnest, Peter says to grow in the faith and by it grow in knowledge. Increase in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Study him. Study his life. Study his divinity. Study what he did for you on the cross. Study what he did for you when he resurrected. Study him as he's in heaven right now at the right hand of the Father ruling and reigning and all authority in heaven and on earth is his. Set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. You know, who in the New Testament was a learned man? I mean, when you read about Peter and as I've just talked about some of the other apostles, you wouldn't say that they were learned men, the 12 disciples. But the Johnny-come-lately one, he was a learned man. Saul before Paul. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He says he was moving forward. He was, he was going further, so to speak, in the Pharisaical rank than any of his contemporaries. He says, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. I took my faith in God. I took my intellectual academia so seriously in knowing the law that I was ready to hunt down anyone that didn't believe it as I did. And for him, that was the way, as they called it before they called them Christians. In Christianity, it was called the way, and he was hunting down Christians because they went against everything that he knew to be true. And it wasn't until God wasn't until Christ appeared to him on that road to Damascus and humbled him in that bright light and he dropped to his knees and everything changed. All the learning apart from Jesus Christ was meaningless. 
and he admits that in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. He had a change of heart. Listen to what Paul says in these five verses. They sum up his lifelong mission to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. You can turn there if you'd like. Or just listen. He says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which is derived from the law, but a righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I might know him, the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings and be conformed unto his death, in order that I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus, brethren. I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You got some bonus verses in there. I really love this text. It's one I can't get out of my mind. It's one I meditate on often. It's one I almost share every Sunday every other Sunday. I keep getting it in there somehow. Some way it applies to everything I'm teaching. There's an urgency there. He says, I'm pressing on. I'm forgetting what lies behind. Yes, I was a Pharisee. Yes, I was excelling in that. Yes, I knew a lot about the law. Yes, I was just on fire for my false faith. He probably was very wealthy. He probably was very prominent. He probably had a lot of people look up to him. And he says, that's all rubbish. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss. More than that, I count all things to be loss. You get out the scales and it goes, Jesus, all the way. I'm going after Jesus. I want to know Jesus. I want to experientially know him. And the two times he says the word know, the surpassing value of knowing Jesus. That's the same Greek word used in 2 Peter 3.18 where Peter says grow in the grace of knowledge of Jesus Christ. And Paul says it's a surpassing value of knowing Christ. And then he goes on to say that I might know him. I want to know him more. It's his life ambition. He let everything go. He put everything aside. He was willing to become the scum of the earth. He was willing to get beat up and tortured, stoned to death and death and left for dead. God raised him up. Whatever town he went to, he says, I'm proclaiming Jesus Christ. I want to know him more. That was his life ambition. And we read that and we go, well, he was a super Christian. He was just a radical Christian. I mean, that's, that's the Apostle Paul. I mean, we're just normal Christians here in America in the 21st century. We're busy. We have lives. We have kids. We have jobs. I mean, he was single. He was an apostle. Good for him. I just want to come to church and have a feel-good message and leave and go on with my day. And you're interrupting this, Nick. I don't appreciate it. Okay, hopefully none of you are thinking that, but just in case there's one person, Paul says in verse 17, join in following my example. Observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. He goes, I'm the model. Christ is the ultimate model, but hey, I'm doing a pretty good job. I'm not going to boast about it. That's essentially what he says in his letters. I'm doing pretty good. And then he says, it's only by God's grace. If you read 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I've done more than all the apostles, okay? But he goes, it's only by God's grace. By the grace of God, I've done it, okay? And he goes, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me on the road to persecution, suffering, hardship, and ultimately death. He says, this is the surpassing value. I want to know Christ because with that, he gets to share in the joys of Christ he gets to share in being filled with the Holy Spirit like Jesus Christ. He gets to share in living the abundant life, living water and never thirsting again. To the world, it's scum. To the world, it's laughable. To the world, it's ridiculous. To the world, it's unfulfilling, boring. Why would you live that way, Paul? You were a Pharisee. You had everything. And he's saying this is the abundant life. This is where it's at, knowing 
Jesus Christ. That should be our goal. We should follow that example. Last Christmas, I put up a Christmas tree, as I try to do pretty much every year, and it kept falling over. So I got some rope, and I tied it around it. That didn't work. It kept falling over. It looked pretty cheesy and horrible, but I just wanted this thing to stand. So we put things next to it, stacked the presents really high so the tree wouldn't fall over, and just the lightest breeze or someone nicked the tree, it would just tilt right over. And I think it was the cheap stand that I bought several years ago. And Leah reminded me this morning that the tree was crooked. And so even if the stand was good, she said the tree kind of went up like this and then like over. And perhaps that's why it kept falling over. So I keep picking bad trees. That's not the point that I'm bringing up here. The point is, I believe, with my analogy, was that mostly it was the foundation. The tree kept falling over because I picked out a cheap stand, a cheap base. And some of us, if our foundation isn't in Jesus Christ where it should be, if we're not growing in the knowledge of him, we're easily tipped over. The lightest breeze, the lightest trial, the lightest things said to us just knocks us silly. God wants us to grow, to truly understand his grace, truly understand Christ, to be united with him so that when the hardships come, the difficulties of life, the hurricanes, tornadoes, the the harsh weather, so to speak, we're still standing after it passes. So that's the teaching for today. Get your roots deep. Make your foundation strong so that no deception of the enemy, no temptation of this world, no enticement of our flesh will be able to cause us to fall from our own steadfastness. I want to share two verses as I close. My mom texted me these two verses as I was putting this message together, and I think they apply. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green, and it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. Jeremiah 17, 7 and 8. Get those roots deep. Get them by the water. So when the drought comes, the harsh weather comes, the heat comes, you're going to flourish when those around you are doing the opposite. Amen.